I want to ask you a question, and I wish that you would take this question very seriously. I want you to think about it and formulate an answer in your mind in the few seconds that we have to do so. The question is this. What would it take to make you a joyful person? A person full of joy, a person with lasting happiness. Picture it in your mind right now. What would it take to make you a joyful person? It may interest you to know that a study has been done to find out what would make people happy. And it's a very broad study. It involved a very large portion of the population. People who knew they were being watched and people who did not know they were being watched were part of this study. It involved all age groups. It involved both genders. It involved nationalities of all different races. It involved ethnic groups and religious groups, work classes and financial divisions. It included all. Everyone was covered in this study. It may surprise you to find that most of what we as Americans would say made us happy did not make the list. It may also surprise you to find that uh, the author, the one who did the study, before he ever did the study or ever put the information into a book, had already determined what the answer would be. Already knew it. For us, we would think possibly, you know, uh, well, if I could just have a, a relationship with this person, or if I just had this job, or this house, or this car, or some people would sum it up in three words. What would it take to make you happy, permanently happy? They would say it in three words, lottery. If I could just win the lottery. Uh, next time I'll say that slower. But, uh, you know, our imagination sometimes wanders into the things that are tangible. Now, I've kind of played on you just a little bit to draw a little bit of attention to the thought of where we're wanting to go this morning. But the person who conducted the study was God. And the Bible tells us that God watches over us. He's one who sees what's going on in our lives. But before he ever conducted the study on thousands and millions, and in fact every person that's ever lived, God already knew what it would take to make an individual happy. You see, God already knew that because God is the one that placed it within the heart of man what it would be that would make him happy. So it was really not shocking to God to find that tangible items were something that would bring temporary satisfaction but would definitely not bring lasting happiness. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. You've got to remember when he's writing this particular passage, he's in prison. He's writing it to his friends in Philippi who he has not seen in over a year because he's been in prison for that time. He's awaiting the verdict from Caesar. Caesar will either send down a verdict that says, free him, set him free, or Caesar will send down the verdict that says, execute him. And it's during the course of this time, with this mindset, that Paul begins to wonder how his friends are doing in Philippi. Are they still the humble people that they started out to be? Are they still the people that are more interested in serving God than serving possessions? Or have they allowed the world around them to corrupt them to the point that they have become prideful and boastful and they've put their attention, their attention and their affections on things other than God? 
Paul lays out for us in this passage that the very thing that seems least likely, in fact, I wouldn't imagine that anyone answered the question like this, but the very thing that seems least likely is the thing that will bring us lasting happiness and will make us joyful people. You see on the screen, number one, joyful. Number two, humility. And then it says you can't have one joyful without the other, humility. Let's examine this passage a little bit and take some thoughts from it. Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses, Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those things in heaven, those on earth, and those things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Well, the Apostle Paul lays out for us information regarding the matter of humility. Now, we've talked through the course of this series about being marked, how the Apostle Paul bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we may never bear those physical markings, and yet there are the undeniable markings that say we belong to Jesus Christ. And one of those undeniable markings is the mark of humility. As we go through the course of this service, I would like to just bring out six thoughts that the Apostle Paul brought out in this passage. The first one pertains a meaning. What does it mean to be humble? The Apostle Paul answers that in verses 3 and 4, and he says, It means to consider others better than yourself. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now certainly, for us to consider others as better than ourselves is not something that comes natural to us, is it? I mean, we're people who pretty much want to get all we can, and we figure the more we get, the more we can get, the happier we're going to become. And yet God presents to us a completely different picture. God says you want to be the one who is greatest, then you become the least. You want to be the one that is filled with the most joy, the one that is happiest with enduring happiness, then become a servant to all. God lays out a completely different picture than what we're used to seeing in our day and time and in our society. God says you want to be happy, you take on the characteristic of humility. Now understand, because we know what human nature is all about, we must know that, that this matter of humility will not come about through stepping on people or stepping over others to get what we want. I'm very well aware of my own 
humanness. I understand very clearly that at the base of my core, I am pretty much a selfish person. Now, I'm not near as selfish as I used to be. I've grown through some of that. But I'm still a very selfish individual. I know that. And probably if we were honest with each other, we could go around the room and each of us would say, you know what, for the most part, a lot of my motives tend out of my selfishness. And yet God has such a greater plan and a greater vision in mind for us. And sometimes we see it th through the pages of the Bible and we don't understand exactly what it looks like. So what does it mean, what does it look like if I were to become humble? If we as a group of people would be humble in spirit, what does that look like? Well, it could actually be something as simple as letting others go first. It could be something as simple as not taking the biggest piece of dessert or not taking the last piece of dessert. It could be something a little more important like keeping your promises or being on time for an appointment. Or it could be something that is greatly important like telling others about Jesus Christ. You say, well, now wait a minute, Tom. I mean, if I'm talking to someone about Jesus Christ, how exactly does that show my humility? Well, when we take the stand that something is right and something is wrong. And we step out on a limb and we take the opportunity to tell someone that there is a real place called hell. And there is a way to avoid this place called hell and his name is Jesus Christ. And we're stepping out, taking a chance that we're going to be criticized, mocked, made fun of, whatever. But it's humility that says, you're more important than me. And as a result, it doesn't matter to me what you say in return. It doesn't matter to me what you think about me. What matters is that I tell you of something so important that it can change your eternal destination. That's humility. So God lays it out for us. He says, this is what I want you to do. And he shows this very clearly through the great role model, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was a great role model. Paul was a great example of humility, no doubt about it. But Paul, rather than refer to himself, referred to one that was a greater example. The Bible tells us in verse 5, Paul said, Let this mind be in you, this mind of humility, thinking of others is better than yourself. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes through the next couple of verses to explain exactly what it meant for Jesus to lay down an example of humility. He basically says, here's the answer, here's the summary. To be unconcerned about your personal position. Number two, be unconcerned about your personal position. Look, if you will, verses 6 and 7. He says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul lays out for us what I consider to be incredible insight here. I mean, it, it really amazed me the more I studied about this particular portion of Scripture. It really gave me a lot of, of insight and depth into what was going on in this day and time. Because Paul was saying, here we have God. 100% God leaving glory to come to be a man. And in man's clothing, we find him still being 100% God and yet 100% man. Now, it's hard for us to understand how that works, and yet it is the case. 
Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. And Paul said it was in this situation, in this condition, that Jesus taking on separate roles did not contradict one another. In other words, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the godness of Jesus Christ, was not in conflict with the servanthood of Jesus Christ. In fact, one could not truthfully say by looking at the workings of Jesus Christ, oh, well, look at him. I mean, he's washing his disciples' feet. Look at him. He's eating with notorious sinners. He's, he's serving them. Oh, he can't be God. Look at what he's doing. The Pharisees tried to describe that by saying that about Jesus. They tried to say that he could not possibly be God because he was serving people. And yet, Paul was saying the two are not in contradiction, but they complement each other so well. Because isn't that what God does all the time? Isn't that what God does for us? He serves us. Isn't it the truth that God meets our needs day by day? Isn't it the truth that God provides the next breath that we will breathe? Isn't it true that God provides us with life and existence? God serves mankind. And Jesus' coming did not give up his role of God by serving mankind, but actually exemplified it, showed it to be greater to those who were looking on. And that's what Jesus himself talked about. He was God. And yet he did not come demanding that everyone hand him life on a silver platter. He could have. He very well could have come and said, you know what? I've got the place in the greatest palace in the land. I'm going to be seated in the highest position in the temple. Everyone is going to look at me and you're going to bow before me. You're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. You're going to do this because I'm God and I deserve it. Yet the Bible says that Jesus Christ emptied himself. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't going to take the authority and the, the, the rightfulness that God deserved in man's clothing. He did not take that and require people to see it in him. But instead he emptied that so that he could take on the role of servant for mankind. What an amazing example of humility. The application, I believe, is fairly simple. Be unconcerned about your personal position. It doesn't really matter what titles we've earned. It doesn't really matter what degrees hang on the wall. We are never to lord it over people. We're never to make them feel inferior to us. We're never to, to make them feel like they do, do not belong in our presence. That's basically what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are, are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what do we do? We put aside what is natural for us. And we allow Jesus Christ to be our guide. The one who, though he was God, did not grasp at those things as God, but took on the role of humble servant for mankind. Well, Paul continues his teaching in verse 7, and he says, 
Not only this, but humility involves making yourself a servant. Verse 7, talking about Jesus, he said, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. John 13, verses 12 through 17, go into that a little deeper from Jesus' perspective. He said, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down, Jesus said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now somebody could look at that and say, well, Jesus made himself a servant. He's now asking me to follow in that likeness, to become like Jesus Christ in becoming a servant. But I've got to be honest with you, I just don't see how binding myself to be a servant could actually bring me happiness. I mean, how could that make me a person that is full of joy? As I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, the best way I came up with is to go the opposite direction. I want to bring your attention now back to the original question. What is it that would make you a joyful person? Now, you thought of something. You thought of something that you would, would consider uh, possibly being able to make you happy. Bring that back up in your thoughts for a second. Because regardless of what it is, if it happens to be finances, if it happens to be health, if it happens to be something tangible like a house or a car or a relationship, regardless of what it is, bring that up in your mind for just a second. Because I want you to consider that you were able to achieve that. You were able to get the job. You were able to win the lottery. You were able to get the car, the house, or your health came back, or the relationship that you were missing all of a sudden restored itself. You've got the happiness you thought you would have, right? But what happens if all of a sudden it's taken away? What happens if the relationship goes south? What happens if your health turns bad again, or you lose the job, you lose the promotion, you lose the finances? What happens? You know, what happens is that our life takes a dramatic turn for the worst. All of a sudden, the happiness that we had is gone. Why? Because keeping those things are not really in our total control. Life happens. Things go bad. But if on the other side of this, I make my priority doing what God has told me to do. I put as my priority being a servant to all then all of a sudden I have set my sights on a goal that is very achievable, something that's in my control. God would not tell me to do it if it wasn't available to me. Something that's in my control and something that sets me up for complete and lasting happiness. Why is that? Because if I'm doing something God's made available to me, something that I can do, something that cannot be taken away from me, then you can't steal my joy can't steal my happiness. And then if I'm being the servant that I should be, that God wants me to be, and you talk badly about me, or you hate me, you despise me, you do things to harm me, I'm just a servant. I'm the lowliest person in the whole kingdom, and therefore you have a right to do whatever you want to to me. 
that's not going to steal my joy. That's not going to take my happiness away from me. You see, God lays out a plan for us to be happy through something that is obtainable and something that is lasting. He doesn't want us to be happy based upon possession, something that is tangible, something that is out of our control, that can be removed from us at any time. God wants us to base our happiness upon something that will actually bring it and will keep it. Well, the Apostle Paul then talks about, in verse 8, an additional element. He said, I, I want you to understand that being humble means that you will obey even when it's not convenient. You will obey even when it's completely inconvenient for you. In verse 8, he says this, again talking of Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now we can see very clearly the extent to which Jesus' obedience to God the Father went. It wasn't that when the guards came to the garden to take him, or when the guard pulled out the whip to beat him, or when the guard pulled out the nail and the hammer to drive it into his wrist and his feet. It wasn't that Jesus said, oh, you know what? This is not going to be convenient. <laughs> I'm not going to enjoy this, and therefore, you know what? My obedience stops right here. He could have done that. Uh, when Peter drew his sword in the garden, he said, Peter, do you not know that if, if I wanted to, I could call for a, a legion of angels to come and fight this battle and take me out of this? But Jesus was obedient even when it wasn't convenient. I was thinking about that. I wonder just how far my obedience goes. You know, am I, am I obedient to the Word of God when it's going to mean I'm going to lose? Am I obedient to the Word of God when no one else seems to understand? Am I obedient to the Word of God when it doesn't say what I want it to say? You know, true humility is seen through obedience. Maybe that's hard to see on the surface, but understand this. When I'm obedient to the commandment of Jesus Christ, when I'm following God and doing what He's telling me to do, what am I saying? I'm saying, God, You are more important than I am. Your decisions, Your commandments are more important than what I want to do in life. What you're telling me to do, even though it goes against my grain, it goes against my very nature, it's not what I find enjoyable, at least on the surface, but God, you're more important to me, and I'm totally dependent upon you, and therefore, I will do what you tell me to do. What are we saying? God, I'm humbling myself before you because I'm admitting your authority over me. Obedience is a great illustration of humility. Obedience is a great illustration not only in ourselves but also to the world that's looking on. You know, people are watching us. They want to see what's happening in our lives. The Bible says that they will see your good works and what will they do? They'll put it off. No. They'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. They may ne never verbalize it, but in the back of their minds they're thinking, something different there. Something so different about that person. 
So we will either humble ourselves before the will of God or we will raise ourselves up to a place that is like God and we will say, well, your authority and your command doesn't apply to me in that situation. You may be thinking, well, Tom, that really is good advice. I mean, I can see how people ought to follow that. But to be honest with you, I know myself better than you do. And I really don't see how I can become that humble person. I really don't see how I can develop that in my life. I don't see how that attribute and that quality and that undeniable marking of humility could possibly become part of my existence. Well, I'm there with you. I've struggled with that, but I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't, at least in that he instructs us in how to do it. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Work hard and let God change your will. That's interesting. Look at these two verses, 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. Now listen to this because this sounds so bad. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me read it again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Is he saying we have to earn our salvation? I mean, is Paul telling us now that it's everything we've been teaching in this church for years and years is completely wrong according to the gospel? No. No, in fact, Paul is just reaffirming everything we've taught. You see, when it comes to salvation, salvation extends beyond the point that we receive Christ. It actually can be summed up in two words. There's justification and there's sanctification. Now let me, let me take these words one at a time. and I believe we'll see what Paul is talking about. Justification is that one-time process. And I really wish that I could have changed this definition before you saw it on the screen or heard me talk about it. But justification is the one-time act of God by which we are pronounced not guilty of our sin. Now, I wish I could have changed this because of the fact it's not that God ever said, well, you're no longer a sinner. The Bible makes it very clear that we're all guilty of doing wrong. It says we've all sinned and therefore we fall short of God's glorious standard. It says that there is none righteous, not even one. It's not that God said you're no longer a sinner because we still possess that sinful nature. But it is that God said because you in faith have asked me to forgive your sin and Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life that I now stamp on your sinfulness debt paid. Debt paid. You see, me doing wrong against God requires a payment. And I have two choices in that matter. I can either pay the price of my own sinfulness in a very real place called the lake of fire for all of eternity and still never satisfy the debt, or I can simply accept Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of my life. You see, Jesus died on the cross of Calvary thousands of years ago in order to pay the price of my sinfulness. And guess what? He did that for you too. did that for you too. And so justification is that one-time process, that one-time act where God brings us out of our sinfulness, declares us righteous before Him, stamps debt paid upon it, and gives us the opportunity to enter into a relationship with the Almighty God. It's an amazing thing. That is the part that cannot be earned. I can't work for it. 
I don't deserve it. I cannot achieve it on my own. It is a gift from God. The Bible says, not of works, lest any man should boast and say, look at what I've accomplished. But in fact, it is the gift of God that brings salvation to an individual. That is justification. But the salvation process continues. Not that we change our eternal destiny, but God begins to work on us to make us more like His Son. This is the sanctification process. Sanctification. Sanctification means this. It's the process of being made more and more into the image of Christ in our physical lives here on earth. Now you've got to understand. It's a lifelong process where we submit to the will of God. And God in turn begins to mold and shape us and begins to knock off those parts that do not look like Christ. He chisels away those areas in our lives that, that look more like the devil than it does God. And He begins to turn us and shape us into the image of His Son and begins to turn our will from going completely opposite away from God's will to molding it back to where it lines up with God's will. Now I say it's a lifelong process because unfortunately maybe God aligns our will with His in some ways. He brings us into the place to where we accept His will for our lives. But these other areas of our lives are still going every which direction. And so God, once He gets this in line, begins to work on another area to bring us into line to where we look more like His Son in character, in person, in spirit. And God begins to work on us. See, the Apostle Paul is not saying that we need to earn our salvation. Instead, he's saying you need to be obedient to the Word of God. You need to be uh, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit within you. You need to work out in the physical realm this spiritual salvation that you received at the moment you asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And the great thing is, if we do our part, and God has promised that He will begin changing not only our actions, but He will also change our will. It's kind of like God standing in heaven and He's cheering us on. Okay, okay, let's work on this area now. Don't stop, don't quit. I heard a story recently of a, a very famous Polish composer pianist. If I could say his name, you might would know it. I can't say it, so I'm not even going to attempt it. But he was asked to do a concert for the elite crowd in America, and it was this great extravaganza. I mean, it was a big deal. The top-of-the-line top people were there, if you know what I'm talking about. In the audience was a mother and her nine-year-old son. She wanted him to hear this pianist play. And it wasn't long while they were waiting that the young man became fidgety and impatient. The show was supposed to start, but it wasn't starting yet. He really didn't want to be there anyway. And in one moment, while his mother's eyes were attentive somewhere else, the story goes that the young man got up and wandered up toward the stage. And as he was looking at the stage, the story is told to me that he became strangely drawn to the grand piano sitting on the stage. The audience was conversing back and forth. No one was really paying attention. And so they didn't notice when he crawled up on the stage and went and sat on the stool behind the piano. But much to their dismay, when he started playing chopsticks, everyone's attention was drawn to the little boy on the stage. Everyone was seeing. And because this was such an, an unto-do thing, they started screaming, Get that kid away from the piano! Get that kid off the stage! 
The pianist in the back heard the uproar, grabbed his coat, quickly ran out on the stage to find out what was going on, and there with his back to him was a little boy seated at his piano playing chopsticks. The story goes that the conductor walked toward him, the composer rather, the crowd hushed as they waited to see what he would do. Would he grab the little boy and throw him out of the theater? What would he do? But most of them were completely taken back when the conductor reached his arms around the little boy and began to improvise a counter melody to chopsticks. The little boy told his mama after the show was over, she said, why didn't you stop and come down? And he said, Mama, he kept whispering in my ears, don't quit, don't quit, son. Keep going, keep going, keep going. I just picture God in heaven wanting so much for us to be in the image of his son. That as he chisels away these rough parts, and it is hard, it's difficult. I mean, giving up things that we've had as part of our existence from the day we were born is very hard. And yet God is saying, don't stop, don't quit. Man, just a little bit more. Let me keep working here. Let me keep working. Well, one final thought. What's the result of a life lived with humility? Paul says that your life will be, bring light to dark places. Uh, look, if you will, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Let's stop there. Shining as lights in the world. I, I was thinking about someone that would fall into this category. Mother Teresa came to mind. I mean, here was a woman that devoted her life, humbled herself to become servants to the poorest people in India. An amazing story. And here she was in this dark part of the world, and yet somehow she got worldwide recognition. She got the acknowledgement of people who would not normally give acknowledgement to someone who claimed to be a child of God. It was as if this bright light was shining into the darkness and out of the darkness. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that if we live lives of humility, that if we become the servants, putting others first the way he instructs us to do so, that the result will be that we will shine like stars in the universe as we hold up the word of life to other people. That they will see the good works that we're doing. They will glorify our Father in heaven. They will see the light. They may not acknowledge the light. They may try to snuff it out. They may try to stomp it out. But the light will shine in darkness. God lays out for us the perfect example of humility. Jesus Christ. And God says, now I want you to be like my son. And if you will work toward that, I will work in your life to change your actions, to change your will, so that you can enjoy that lasting happiness that you can be that joyful person that you desire to be. I want one more time to go back to the original question. What is it that can make you a joyful person? You know, I hope that in your mind now, there's a different picture coming up. 